0: Welcome to the Tri Tech Games Podcast.
1: This is Bruce. This is John.
2: This is Amber.
1: And this is Paul. Welcome to the Tritac Games Podcast. Your podcast of adventuring even though you can't see anything because there's steam and mist everywhere and something's in your eye and I think it's somebody's thumb. <coughs> Tonight we are talking about steampunk in Fringeworthy and Bureau 13. Now, we really hoped to have Richard Taholka on with us because, uh, so he could pimp his new book, The Bureau 13 Supplement, Bureau 13 Brass and Steam, but I don't think that's going to happen. Hopefully, he he'll, he'll might give us some stuff on our Facebook page to go along with this when we actually drop this episode. We've already had a lot of discussion beforehand about how it's really hard to nail down what steampunk is, and I'm sure that you, our listeners, have your own ideas So what we're going to be concentrating on here is not trying to give a literary definition or a genre definition, but rather something we think would create that look and feel, especially in a game, because that's what we're here for. We're gamers. We want to bring the awesome. We want to bring you into a new kind of environment. And steampunk is one of those types of environments as well. Uh, Now, Trav, you've done a lot of research onto what some people's ideas of steampunk is. So why don't you pass it on?
3: Well, yeah, because I have a steampunk persona that I created a few years back and that I was as during the three World Steam Expos, 2010 to 2012, Professor Hieronymus Michaels. Uh, Steampunk is a, well, subculture that exemplifies steam uh, steam technology Usually Victorian, not necessarily mindset, but fashion. A bit of te- technological, well, okay, retro technological know-how. I mean, they have Steam Mecca. There's a video on YouTube that has two gentlemen fighting in Steam Mecca and just, like, destroying the backyard of this mansion over a woman. So, I mean, often impossible technologies due to steam, are part of the uh, subculture and genre. It was based on the old scientific romances of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells. The whole subculture has pretty much become mainstream now because it's been out for like 10 years. I mean, there's even steampunk music such as Abney Park. Actually, friends of mine. Abney Park, Steam Powered Giraffe, The Extraordinary Contraptions, The Cog Is Dead. So, I mean, there's a whole musical... Sub genre of steampunk.
1: Right, and there's plenty of conventions about it too.
3: Oh yes, as I said, we just had one two weeks ago. The successor to the World Steam Expo here in the Detroit area, up in the eighth of the convention, and Steam and uh, Voltaire was there. He's sort of a goth, dark cabaret performer who dresses in that.
1: Down here in Atlanta, we have anacron, which is uh, or an Acrocon, I'm sorry, which is very much oriented toward people who want to dress up in steampunk type clothing and personas, as you as you put it.
3: There are two very popular, I guess, proponents of the subculture, and they're both on the East Coast. Uh, Jeffrey D. Falkson. And Evelyn Cridey, now I've seen both of them at World Scene Expo. These people have been on MTV to describe the subculture. Both of them are very well-known literarily. Mr. Falkson has written several articles for several different publications over the past, oh God, probably decade now. So yeah, I mean, it has become a nationally recognized part of, of... the culture of this country and worldwide. I mean, I'm sure you know. Obviously, it's big in Britain. I mean, they. I'm sure they have steampunk cons left, right, and center. But I mean, there's even a woman here in Michigan, Jenny Hellum, who writes a blog about multiculturalism in steampunk, where you will have maybe stuff from Africa or stuff from Germany. Matter of fact, she has a um, steampunk character, Capitan von Grell of an all-female airship of pirate hunters, and I met her a few years back at a local convention. So, I mean, steampunk has many different meanings. You can throw in a lot of stuff and make it steampunk. It's a subculture of one, almost, because every single person has their own different view, take, and mindset about what steampunk is. Generally, it's of the time period as John mentioned before the show, around 1880 to 1910. Yeah, yeah. The Victorian era, as in Queen Victoria. So, there are many ways to describe it, and it would take several podcasts for us just to try to fit all the descriptions, so we're going to try to keep it in a somewhat generalized focus and go from there. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Uh, late Victorian, early Edwardian. Thank you, Paul. Yeah,
0: and, and depending on your genre... Either Queen Victoria, you know, passes away in the in the early nineteen tens, or she becomes some sort of you know steampunk you know bionic creature, and she rules Victoria for the rest of for the rest of the eternity. Depends on your genres, though.
3: Oh yeah, as I said, steam technology, a lot of weird things, modern day stuff can be made with steam technology. As far as the fiction goes, there is the book of. Of course, probably the the definitive steampunk book would be The Difference Engine by William Gibson and Bruce Sterling. Now, those of you who know William Gibson, he's the father of cyberpunk with the *Oh, um, Burning Chrome, uh, Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. Well, him and Bruce Sterling collaborated on The Difference Engine, and it was, what if Babbage actually got to make his Difference Engine? How would the world have changed back 100, now 150 years ago? Yeah, and these computers, of course, were steam-driven with the punch cards and about the size of a factory. Yeah,
0: of course. the The, the controversy is is that uh, Gibson refuses to call it steampunk.
3: Yeah, I think somebody else actually coined the coined the term. I forget who.
1: Now there are a lot of machines that actually were available with in steam versions that are surprising. For example, there were steam-powered po- airplanes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When they think of steam, they think of a big, huge boiler and, you know, big iron like a locomotive. And how could such a thing possibly fly? Oh, sure, maybe it could be in a dirigible or something, but not an airplane. By the 1920s, they were making boilers out of very strong steel and they were using gasoline and other types of fuels to create very small, very powerfully pressurized containers to drive steam pistons. And so you really could have a steam-powered airplane. There are a, a video on YouTube of such a plane. So we definitely suggest that you check that out. Now, of course, its limitation is that it, it doesn't have a recycling steam. So, therefore, the steam is being blown out. You're going to run out of water. So I expect its lifespan in the air was relatively short. However... That's a failure of development of technology, not necessarily the technology itself.
3: The Romans, they had everything together. They were yay close to actually have a working steam engine. History has found this out. Oh,
0: the Iliopile, I believe it was, it was called. Okay. It, was, it was Basically, the, the brass cylinder that had two spouts that had—they were bent at an angle, and it was heated over a fire, and it would then produce steam. As, as water boiled, and it would start spinning around.
3: Okay. So, I mean, Steam Tech, the potential was there during the Roman Empire. Now, of course, a fantastic game would be Romans with Steam Tech. I mean, that would just be, you know, hey. you could just go right down the line how they're...
0: The Romans were just just a few steps away from Industrial Revolution. The only problem was they didn't have a middle class to really feed it. But you know, you're talking about aircraft, you know, of course, it's invariable you'll see Zeppelins in a lot of Victorian stuff. Of course, I'm an airship nut so I can tell you yeah except that Count von Zeppelin didn't fly his first airship until like 19 something and it didn't look anything like a zeppelin it's cigar shaped it wasn't a zeppelin but still okay
1: that's 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 it. so you, you you can still have them though I mean, if you want to place your adventure here on Earth in that period of time, it's an alternate of Earth, anyways. So, you know, because you know there wasn't any real steampunk type society. You know, unless you're talking about a very small segment uh, of, as you said, uh, uh, Edwardian and, and Victorian society. So most of the time when we're talking about this, we're talking about a slightly alternate dimension or in the case of Fringeworthy, a, a time retarded time or just an alternate that you're going to. So these issues about when did the dirigibles fly, when was this particular device created, it's important for the GM to know that. But from the standpoint of could it be part of, not part of Steampunk, I really think that's that's really a moot point. A world-infringeworthy, where there's steam
0: technology and steampunk. I wonder where that is. Would it be Victorian Prime? Or as the Victorians like to call it, British Empire Prime? Britannica Prime? Britannica Prime, one of those.
3: I like that name, yeah.
0: Yeah, Britannica Prime. They got airships. Built by Ferdinand von Zeppelin. When he was much younger, there was the Great War of Europe. Well, they put the young aviator to work, and he built it, he built the first airships in 1860. So, yeah, he'd be a young spread at that point, like 20, 30 years old. They're, at the time of the game, uh, uh, fringe-worthy, in the Fringeworthy time frame, they have airships. In fact, they have the biggest airship you have ever seen. If you're familiar, there's the Graf Zeppelin, the biggest airship ever built. Uh, built by the Germans. Imagine something fifty percent longer and two of them tied together. That's the Arc Royale, Queen Victoria's personal airship. <laughs> so yeah, there's airships, you know, and, and Congreve rockets and hail hail rockets and all those fun things, which means they're all lit by hand. But, you know, that's the fun of being Victorian.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but you don't have to follow that at all. I mean, John, that's your vision of it, and that's fine. But I'm just saying is that, you know, when we talk about steampunk, we don't have to be strict about any of these types of things. It's up to the GM to decide how close they actually want to make to the development of things in uh, American society. My wife thinks the steampunk is really prior to the Civil War. She likes her vision of steampunk Earlier than than what you're saying, which is fine with me. I told her I said, "Well, yeah, but just remember that it isn't just Victorian. I mean, they had uh, steam power devices in India, and they had it in China, and they had it in a lot of other places too. So when we talk about steampunk, okay, it's it doesn't always have to have that those um, you know those brownstone." Uh, buildings, you know, and, and and Big Ben tolling in the background for it to be a steampunk environment, and and the famous London smog, I mean fog, right. Well, that is one thing I think is part of steampunk. Okay, and that's what I, I one of the things I wanted to go over is is that I think that as a GM, you don't have to know everything about technology and what was available, and what wasn't, in order to create a steampunk feeling. Uh, Or a a setting to your particular adventure. I think you can do it almost purely through a lot of the Elements as far as the experiential elements uh, of the environment which they're going to be in and one of those things is fog When I think of steampunk, I think of lots of mist fog steam being a big part of it, but also all the rest of it fog on the morning the fact that you can't see in the distance because of all the fog that's there, you know, that I think is part of it. I think that during the day even it's foggy because there's all the smoke coming from smokestacks, coming from boilers, coming from, you know, devices that use steam and furnaces because coal was king back then, even though they were starting to use fuel oil, and, they, and fuel oil could be used a lot if you wanted to in your steampunk world. Well, that's what the Welsh are for. The, the mine the coal the, so we can we have fires in our fireplaces, right? But I'm just saying is that you know you think of a city, okay, and you think of columns of smoke, right, black smoke rising from a, uh, a thousand chimneys. This, this constant smell of burning material and soot on everything you know even even the, stuts, the, uh, the, the and people shine what you know rubbing it off to, to bring the shine back so I'm saying that's part of what I think is steampunk is that whole idea that you're gonna have the mist and the fog and the steam everywhere and that you know regardless you know and it's it's, it's basically a byproduct of the technology but it's also a byproduct of urbanization. It's also a byproduct of perhaps even the the area in which you're in, whether it might be prone to fogs and other things. Anyways, like England is. Okay, uh, one of the things I also think is is that a steampunk type environment should have large machines, metal machines. You know, it should be very common. You know, whether they're giant clocks or whether they're, you know, boilers or big spools of cable or or huge cranes, you know, uh, carrying things here and there. See, all that kind of clockwork kind of stuff, I think is part, you know, of the steampunk environment, which is why a lot of people like to put all kinds of little gears and things like that in their clothing when they make steampunk clothing. I think that that should be a big part of your environment. You look around, you can see... Things turning and things being hooked together and 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 old pieces of metal you know laying up against the side where they've broken off because they they, they stress themselves to destruction.
0: Oh, and also a lot of cast iron filigree the Crystal Palace is a great example which is is very sad it got destroyed but the Crystal Palace was made out of cast iron and glass so you have this black metal with the with the glass and it must and it all accounts was a, a beautiful place to go to and you do see a lot of cast iron filigree.
1: This is where a lot of those cast iron fences came from, but they are much ornate. And I'm glad you mentioned glass, because another thing I think about having to do also with that smoke and stuff is that his vision is poor. Okay? And it's also poor because of the glass. You see, modern rolling techniques for glass... Probably hadn't been invented yet So what you had was a lot of glass That was usually a result of hand-blown techniques Which meant that in the glass There was distortions It wasn't nice and smooth It was thicker in one part, thinner in others You have a center that where the rondelle attaches And it ends up being a really hard to see Very distorted thing So when you're looking through glass You're seeing distortions and twists And, you know, which which brings in the idea where people like to have lenses and stuff. Well, you had that on almost every window. Every window showed distortions of light coming through it. The same with glass pieces on the outside for decoration, crystals, and and cut glass of all kind, because they developed that kind of technology to do that. They just hadn't built the ability to make big, clear, optically pure glass except in very limited amounts, which they used in... In, in eyeglasses and lenses, which is why they were so expensive.
0: Yeah, and then you know, basically a blob and sp- blown into a cylinder, then flattened, and
1: then spun into a disc. And then they would then cut the pieces out of the disc. And if they were rolled, they were rolled by hand with pieces of metal pushing down on the semi-soft glass to try to flatten it out. All the glass that you have in a, a steampunk environment is all going to be very distorted. And it's going to let light come through, which is its purpose. It's, it's going to cause you to become confused sometimes. It could create illusions, could create shadows of things that you think you see, but you don't really, because it's really a refraction in the glass that was unintended. Uh, you
0: could easily have
1: an adventure in
0: the Wild Wild West. I mean, let's be honest, You know, oh. uh, the, the TV series and the movie have the same name, Wild Wild West.
3: There was The Adventures of Briscoe County, Jr. There was Legend with Richard Dean Anderson and John DeLancey. Yeah. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Sean Connery, was considered steampunk.
0: Very much so. Haggard, uh, he wrote Al- Alan Quartermain uh, novels. And I would put those squarely into that genre of adventure pulp uh, steampunk adventures.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd put it in the pulp for sure. I'm not sure about the steampunk because he was very much in the African environment. Not a whole lot of that down there. This veggie you're setting. Well, you could do what you want with it, sure. I'm just saying the source material doesn't have a whole lot of it. it has a lot more of animals and men being men doing manly things. <laughs>
0: I'm thinking the Penny Dreadfuls, which were just full of this kind of stuff, of guys going out there, and then a few of them had things like uh, the steam-powered horse. So yeah, so even the Penny Dreadfuls will have could be a source. And I'm not sure where you can find some, but there's probably a place online where you can find Penny Dreadfuls the mine.
1: <laughs> but let's go back. Oh, and let's not talk about light. Okay, in the steampunk environment. Okay, my personal opinion is is that light should always be. Candle light Or gas Gas. Basically that's a replacement for candlelight. It's gas blobs of light About the size of a candle Alright and if you want more light You don't make it brighter Or bigger you put more Candles or you put more gas uh, Outlets coming out Here and there so that's What creates that very You know soft diffuse glow Everywhere and when You bring out your Carbon arc projectors, which is what which they did have available in the theaters. That's where you bring your super science in, because all of a sudden, bam! That super bright light, white light that didn't really exist in their environment, suddenly gets shining through the darkness, cutting through all that steam and smoke and such. Then you know you really come across something autre. Now, I mean, it makes the steampunk seem warm and friendly (laughs) compared to that horrible bright light eye of god stuff that happens when you use with your science fiction
2: i'm a bit inclined to disagree when i think of steampunk i think of light bulbs not like the lsd lights or neon lights or anything like that but just your glass light bulb with the wire in it
1: but it's not a really bright bulb You can see the filament glowing. You can look at it and it doesn't hurt your eyes.
2: Well, I also kind of attribute steampunk to not necessarily being clean. So it may be a bright light bulb, but there may be so much soot and so much dirt on it that it softened. So it's to a tolerable, darker, more moody-like lighting.
3: I think we're in agreement. I think we're also missing some other aspects of steampunk. We've and, and the genre and the setting, I mean, we've certainly I think we've beaten the tech down and gotten that. Yeah. but um Paul mentioned some things, other aspects of what could be considered steampunk?
4: There's just you know period specific things that are the setting itself. I mean, everywhere you're gonna be is gas lights. They light the streets, they light the homes. they light all the public venues. And having stayed in a few remote places where, it, you used a generator or you didn't have electricity that have used gas lights. And they, it, any gas light lamp is as bright as a 60-watt bulb. The funny thing is it just has a reflector on, on the wall side that, you know, bounces that 50% of the light back into the room. And you're really the subtle hiss of them burning all the time. It's always in the back of your mind. You're going to find a mixture of high-tech and low-tech everywhere you go in the setting. So as your as your PCs move through the train, there might be, you know, a steam powered truck, but they've taken a, a horse-drawn hackney cab to get to their destination. You know, the horse-drawn cart and the and the machine haven't are fighting for dominance on the road at this point.
3: Um, anything cultural about specific about the steampunk genre? I mean as far as the mindset or how people are portrayed in that genre?
4: To prepare yourself, I really say you should sit down and read some Jane Austen, maybe Emily Bronte, to get the patterns of speech down and maybe get your head the distinctions between the roles men and women play and the elaborate, you know, formal speech. The and thou is still stuck around in the way to talk all around a subject without ever actually alluding to it?
3: Well, I would think also the class, because it was such a class-driven system, especially in Victorian England, you had the high-class people, the rich, and they had their method of speaking. Then you had the people there, like, you know, and another good steampunk era author, of course, Charles Dickens. You had the people like Oliver and the Artful Dodgers like, mm-hmm. hello, Governor, what are you doing? You know, you had that very low-class speech, and <laughs> that was a defining thing, was the class structure yep. of the people of that era where speech was definitely different. You go into a high-society function, and you're talking... Oh, oh, God, another good example would be Dr. Uh, not Dr. Doolittle.
1: Pygmalion.
3: Pygmalion, yeah. And that was based on the, the Greek myth of Galadia, Galatia, the statue that came to life. That anyway, Galatea, yeah. Where you had this woman who was, I think, selling flowers. And Rex Harrison's character tried to bring her up and make her a proper society woman by training her in how to be in a higher class social strata. That would be another good example if you wanted to get into the culture of steampunk. Men and women's roles were very deeply defined back then. Mm -hmm. Men did this. Women did this. And if you tried crossing them... Yeah, yep. no. That was and that class and gender and race were all just very rigidly stratified. I guess would be the best term.
0: Mary Poppins is actually a good another example of class structure. Oh yeah, Dick, me speech.
3: Yeah, well, Dick Van Dyke's uh, <laughs> chimney sweep, as opposed to Mary Poppins' proper governess. Yes.
0: Though I understand Julie Andrews had to keep keep him laughing every time he. Dick Van Dyke spoke in Cockney because it wasn't Cockney. but
2: <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely not Cockney. <laughs> and I think yeah.
3: Cockney is, if you were born within the Bells sound of St. Mary's Cathedral in London, you're considered Cockney. I think that is the technical. Michael Caine, his, his original British accent would be, that's Cockney. He does, obviously, a higher-class one when he's doing certain roles, like Alfred in the recent uh, Christopher Mm -hmm. Nolan Batman movies, but his, technically, Mm -hmm. his original speech accent would be considered Cockney.
2: The only thing about Cockney that I really know is that they cannot pronounce the letter T. Water bottle becomes water bottle, and it it just... I, I know someone from England who has a very, very thick, thick Cockney accent and it drove me up the wall.
0: Well, don't get your don't get your bells in a ball in a bunch. <laughs> don't forget you can't do an r either. I. And you got and you have rhyming slang and uh yeah. There's books written on cockney rhyming slang, so you know you can find if you really want to sound like it you can fi- you can find it out there. <laughs> oh, don't even get me started on
2: cockney slang.
3: I I knew someone back in the day who was from britain married uh, an american former co-worker of my second wife and i had to add to ask him two or three times to please repeat what he was saying so i can understand what it was and, <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh. yeah but if you're talking about also about uh, living in that age i mean there, yes there, there's there were strict gender roles there was yeah, but of course it, it was the, the old under the under the rug and behind the curtain type stuff oh no yes.
3: the Victorians oh no it was reputed yeah on the streets you had to an inside society you had proper grammar etiquette you didn't miss a step behind closed doors however <clears throat> there's the
0: Hellfires Club which, which you think was a fictional Marvel thing no that was something that
1: was created in in Victorian England that was a real club, the Hellfire Club. <laughs> but that's where the punk comes in, okay? That's why it's called steampunk because the genre includes breaking from tradition, especially women's roles, where you have women doing alt stuff that they're not supposed to be doing. And you have the worship of the new versus the, you know, the the, the revering of the traditional. And you have science unbound. You know where people are say, saying, "I don't know if, if it's if it's godly to do these kinds of things like stitch people together."
0: But it's science, man, science!
1: <laughs> and the religion that is considered comfortable and known is being replaced by people with strange notions who worship and take place in rituals in strange corners of the very world in which you live. Strange. And not that far away. So that's all part of the steampunk too. So yes, you need that backdrop of starchy, rigid caste society, either whether it's British or whether it's Indian or whether it's Chinese and Japanese. That's why all these places are good locations for it. But then you then you break from it, you know, and that's what makes it the steampunk, is what I believe.
0: I'm still waiting for the first steampunk mariachi band. It's in the it's in the time period. You know, Marichi bands have been around for a while. You know, I just could see them in the, you know, with little gears and so
1: sequins. But anyway, if I may return back to the look and feel of steampunk, I also would like to talk about colors. You have all kinds of bright accents. You know, reds and brights, greens and blues and things like that. But their accents, you know, and you have your brass figurine and, and, and glass crystals and stuff like that. But then it's, it's against a backdrop of flat, dark colors, either dark blues or browns and, of course, leathers. And You can still have a lot of excitement to your clothing. It doesn't have to be dour, you know, tweed, overcoats. Women can have plumes in their hat. It's it's good to have that. You want to have that color, that pizzazz, because that's also part of the emerging new world. Especially because they're doing a lot of exploring at that time, right? You know, they're bringing in new stuff that never would existed before, or never was known to exist before. So you want to see that, but at the same time, is that you have this this dour backdrop that you're spicing up with it. This is also the
0: time the Germans. But the Germans were able to create synthetic dyes, and this is when you look at a color scheme for a Victorian Victorian era house, you go, "Were these folks colorblind? Because yes, you're right. Clothing was probably not that bright, but when it comes to their houses,
1: are you talking about the inside or the outside,
0: John? Oh, the outside. Somebody, I I, I was looking at uh, watching a restoration show there in the. And it was actually a a British restoration show, and they were going through the layers of paint. They hit the Victorian layer. It was bright green, and the trim was deep purple. And the accents were were some other ungodly color combination going, they're blind.
4: This is also a time period that color has subtle meanings of communication. Mm Mm-hmm. As do flowers and some other other things that you can send a subtle message without saying something.
3: Oh yeah, red was often a very naughty, naughty color, yes. Yes, a
4: Victorian woman would, be, would not be caught dead wearing a scarlet dress. Right. And black is only for funerals and other sad events. Yeah. And certain flowers you wouldn't send to somebody on the wrong holiday. Because every bit of it had a subtle subtext of meaning. There's a whole elaborate ritual of courtships when you, know, you send flowers to somebody because you, you fancy them or you want to get to know them better. There are flowers that denote friendship and platonic love.
0: Then there are flowers that denote that deeper romance. It is the art of the calling card? I mean, everything, whenever you went some place, you present your calling card, and they had a special tray to put your calling cards on, and all this stuff. It makes the Japanese calling card ceremonies look sick in, 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 in comparison. Uh, they were very, there was a complete, complete set of rules about calling cards you know, that you had to adhere to, as well as what, what kind and design
1: and so forth. So you're saying that you think that's part of steampunk, or are you just trying to talk about uh, Victorian England again?
0: If you're playing in England, now we'd be, be part of England uh, in your steampunk game, you know. Elsewhere, they may not use the calling cards to the same extent. Definitely not on the continent. Totally different on the continent, but in England, oh yes, it's calling cards. Uh, remember, England at this time did not have decimal currency. So get your little tables out and figure out how many shillings and po- shillings to the pound. Twenty shillings to the pound. Well, those are some long conversations. Remember going over money, John? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Oh my God! Yes, uh, working and out
4: <laughs> saved some other GMs some some time there. There's so few amazing catalogs out there available on the internet of correct period items and equipment with period costs. So, oh yeah, just use Google, search up, you know, 1880s catalogs
1: and enjoy. There's some yeah. really great stuff out there. So let's talk about the feel of steampunk. All right, I mean it's the clothing is going to be you know tweeds and rough spun of your lower classes and but you're also going to have slippery silks as well and of course the metals on you know that are parts of some clothing and the leather lots of leather
2: yeah i kind of imagine being a lot of leather
1: yeah
4: what about rubber though gutta percha or and then later actual rubber rubber from a rubber tree yeah, oh, but... what,
3: what was the phrase that I had heard? Um, steampunk is when goths discovered the color brown. A <laughs> lot of brown. And also because I, at my workplace, I'm sort of the alpha geek, so when I tell them I would go into the World Steam Expo, there was actually a few people who came in Victorian costume because we have a col- uh, costume contest at our job. And I had to explain that the steampunk clothing, it's a tenant style but a two-in comfort. You're in very confining suits and certain types of shoes, and the women, of course, had the corsets and the bustiers and all that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the clothing was very rigid as per the society.
1: Unless you go for the the silks. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, that's what I would do. Well, there's
4: there's another reason it's all dark browns and such like that. It's because the washing machine hadn't been invented
3: yeah hit yeah. the dirt yeah
4: and people typically wore some things if they were in the lower classes they wore it daily until it wore out yeah this is the time when you had the french cuffs and the and the and the removable collars so you you changed the cuffs and the collars that would get dirty but the regular shirt you just put it back on again and probably wore it 6 days a week and it got washed on Sunday when you wore your sunday best
3: yeah, yeah.
0: And then there's the Savoy Road, uh suit, bespoke suits, which basically are, each suit is probably the cost of the lower class uh, yearly income or more than one year's income just to get some of those bespoke suits. These are suits that are tailored within an inch of your life. They take, they measure everything. And make sure that when you put the suit on, it fits. It's perfect. And everything's hand-stitched. And those, those are the ones that really stand out. You know, uh, the, when I was running my friends for the game, all the team got bespoke Savoy Rose suits. Uh, so, yeah, so Seville. Seville Rose suits. And they were just, you know, and they realized that back in it, it, the, the real world cost these suits back in the, on Earth Prime about $5,000 a piece. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah, you see those kinds of suits. And, yeah, and I think you were talking about layer and I think the word here is layers. You have your you have your waistcoat. You have your uh, your shirt, your undershirt. your you know all the various underwears and stuff like that. And Lord knows what the females have to go through. Pip pip layers of petticoats.
2: <laughs> well, if I sit down and kind of think about it, they have their what? They have their overcoat, their petticoat, their corsets, their undergarments. Uh, lacy, frilly, pant things, whatever the heck those are called. I mean, I think a woman at any given time is wearing anywhere between five to seven layers of clothing, depending on how formal she's dressing.
1: And whether she's going outside. Yeah. Because they all had overclothing. Does that include a bustle?
3: Oh, no, the bustle was there. All
0: right. Uh, Could you sit down in
1: one of those things? (laughs) Of course you could. You could sit on a stool. No problem at all.
2: (laughs) I've always kind of been a little curious on how how it would work, because there's always been that stereotype, I suppose, about the prim and proper woman having to be thin and be perfect, and it kind of makes me wonder about health things, oh look at what I did there I just segued uh, that how tight are their corsets, and if they're able to breathe with those and then on top of that assuming that this is a, uh, a steam powered society how clean is the air? Not at all. If they're working with steam and with coal and I would imagine this kind of environment not being particularly Not clean, but also not healthy. So where exactly would the women fit in if they are expected to uphold this appearance? How are their clothes going to stay clean if the air is covered in smog and residue from the burning coal? And how long can you breathe that kind of air?
1: Well, that's why they had the overclothing, was to keep their... Clean clothes from getting dirty, and then the older clothing was left out in the foyer, and then they would go inside with their clean clothing to, to wear. And yes, most people did not spend a lot of time outside because of that. They would be in carriages. They had they had handkerchiefs they held over their faces a lot of times with perfume because there were all these delightful smells in the uh, in, in this age. You know, even though that there was lots of steam and there was lots of Powered things and lorries and all kinds of stuff like that. There were a lot of horses and dogs and you know garbage cans full of material and and poor you know sewage and things were thrown out on the street to run into gutters and such. So there was a very interesting smell in the uh, <laughs> in the steampunk age. Well, okay, but I would say in the in the late eighteen hundreds,
0: late eighteen eighties and on, in London, they didn't have that problem because they jolly well solved that problem with the sewers. You know, and that a lot of those problems were solved in in London by by the building building the major sewer projects they put together on that point. But
1: yeah, other places, yeah, you're right. It's but it still has to get to the sewers, John. Okay, I mean, the horses are still dropping it in the streets, all those, those you know, uh, those apples everywhere. And, you
3: know, and a lot of people still use the chamber pots, which is why they had the custom of the women would walk toward the street. If, you know, a couple were walking down the street, a woman would walk on the side of the sidewalk close to the street, the guy would walk to the side close to the building. So if a chamber pot came out, he would be the one that would get hit, and the women wouldn't.
0: Yeah. Gardaloo! Gardaloo!
1: and it's another reason for the umbrella Yeah. yeah the big saving grace is places like England and other has a lot of rain and so that washes a lot of that away you know which also adds to the ambience because of all that we talked about those reflections and things you know the reflections of water up of pools of water and urine and other types of things so you have that going for you all the time but, you know, you have this, this, the wet fur of dogs and horses in the air. You have the smell of coal and wood fires. You have the sour smell of the urine and filth in the streets and the waste
3: containers. Well, yeah, and you just had a lot of sweaty people in a confined area such as London. I mean, London oh, was yeah. a big city even back then.
1: But not just London, all these other places. But you also have cigarettes with exotic perfumes in them. And you've got cigars. You know, filling you know rooms as you walk in because you know they everybody a lot of people smoked and even uh, a lot of high uh, upper crust women thought it was very avant-garde to smoke. Especially the, with all the French cigarettes that were coming in in England, but then there's also the wet smell the wet smell of clay and the wet wood of the buildings that were constantly in the air so all these are part of that ambience we're talking about, so you've got the metal and the smell of a burning metal and and stuff, but then there's and this and the smoke, but then you also have this wet smell that's also fairly pervasive because of of, of the damp and, and, the, and the mist and everything else, and all the results of human habitation just flowing out in the, to create a miasma of smell that's part of what I consider to be steampunk.
0: That's why they, they made the sewers, because low tide of the tans around, around the House of Commons was really bad before they had decent sewers. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but 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 uh, we were going to talk about how to get the feel of how to make the players feel that they're in Victorian ages. I mean, so this is all part of it. And the other thing is, well, what do you get to eat in Brit- in, in jolly old England during the Victorian times? Uh, everyone makes a joke of boiled foods, but no, not everything was boiled to an inch of his life. Curries were not that common yet. I mean, that's still that's still to come, but. Uh, not that tasty sometimes. I've watched a couple of shows on Vic- Eating Like a Victorian. A lot of it is plain good food. I mean, uh, it's you know nothing special to write home about. Uh, there's no cuisines. Restaurants really catered to the rich people.
3: There was a phrase that I actually, they put in, of all things, uh, an old hero system book, Kingdom of Champions, How to Game in Britain, as if you were in Britain, on the continent, they have good food. In Britain, they have good table manners. Yeah, that sounds about right. Eating was more about, if you were in the higher class, it was about how you did it. Not, And if you had, because you were higher class, you could possibly get some of those spices from India and various other things from other countries because you could afford it. If you were in the lower class... Hey, I mean, you may have even had to eat things like rat, you know, just to survive because you were barely making enough pence to, you know, support yourself. Mm -hmm. Food was very different. Also, it was class stratified.
1: And medicines were mostly herbal in basis and therefore they weren't like our modern medicines where you take a little pill I mean it has its effect like it's supposed to but you're taking materials that are natural with all the other flavors and constituencies that come with it so your body starts exuding strange smells and because you're eating like you know a whole lot of St. John's wort or you're uh, drinking uh, something that has absinthe absinthe Essence
4: of wormwood, yeah. mildly hallucinogenic.
1: There were people who were taking things like lead, you know, as part of, of, of their health care. So I'm just saying is that there's all these materials that people are putting in their bodies, and it's coming out in their sweat, in their breath, that you would not expect in a modern society.
0: Yeah, Chinese opium. Well, yeah don't forget don't forget to this is still the time where they where they figure cocaine is a, a a great stimulant I mean you know yes Sherlock Holmes was taking a three percent solution seven percent seven percent they seven percent solution but it wasn't illegal it was just simply sort of frowned on do you have a colicky child give him this give him this tincture of, of cocaine yeah you know, or, or opium and they'll just make him shut right up yeah of course it would
3: <laughs> mm, yeah.
0: Put
4: uh, a little dab of laudanum in the baby's bottle the quiet Junior before at bedtime.
0: Yeah, and and then there's the drinking. And let's be honest, we're we're we we we're, we're all te- we're all tempered compared to what you saw back then. Yeah, you know, you know let's, be, let's be honest, they drank a lot back in the in back in the old days. They drank like fish. But that was socially <laughs> yeah. stratified as well.
4: Yeah, And there's another reason you drank beer in that time, because you didn't dare drink the water. You had to be absolutely destitute poor to drink the water. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, you drank small beer. And small yeah, yeah. beer is called small beer because of its really low alcohol content. Yeah. But the brewing process kills
0: mm-hmm. the bacteria and other things that would be in the water that would make you ill. And the alcohol keeps it from actually going bad uh, fairly quickly. I mean, it's, it's my old saying: is you put two glasses down, one one contains beer, one contains water, and you're hard pressed to tell the difference between the two of them. Drink the drink the beer. <laughs> it's also why beer is so popular in third world countries. But uh, yeah, but then also distilled spirits. Distilled spirits were making we making major inroads during this time period. So you'll see a lot more whiskeys and scotches and uh, uh, various other distilled spirits, like brandies and so forth.
4: Don't forget the all-important
0: naval rum.
4: Mm. Your daily daily ration.
2: To wives and mistresses, they never meet.
3: Ah, yes. (laughs) Steampunk, a very vibrant genre of literature and culture and alternate history that you can bring to a bureau 13 or french worthy game there are plenty of sources both in the role playing game world and elsewhere that you can use to make this game pop you can play this game and run this game on a myriad of levels culture exploration politics warfare you could you know have a steampunk battle as i mentioned earlier Steampunk is defined as a culture of one. Every single person who knows about steampunk is going to have a different viewpoint on it because they throw their own things into the mix to make this quasi-Victorian persona like I have with Professor Hieronymus Michaels. This subculture genre will definitely bring a new vibrancy To the game that you play, Bureau 13 and Fringeworthy are both fantastically suited for this particular genre of role-playing. So, as I said, get the research going. Get the props going. Props would be another good thing to have with these games. And I am sure that the whole chocolate and peanut butter mix would be just utterly fantastic in this endeavor of running a steampunk role-playing game in Bureau 13 or Fringeworthy. So, please contact us on our Facebook groups, Bureau 13 Agents Everywhere, friendworthy RPG fans, fans of the TriTac podcast, uh, the Yahoo groups. Please contact us at our Podbean site, tritacsystems.podbean.com. Please check us out on iTunes, and please, reviews and comments on that site. Oh, and uh,
0: don't forget the forums.
3: Yes, the tritacgamers.com forums. <sighs> Uh, please contact us. Let us know if you run a steampunk game. Please let us know how it turned out and what you did in order to prepare for it. We love to hear from you people on on this and other subjects that we cover here on the TriTag Games podcast. So, from all of us here, until next time.
1: This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards
3: and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players.
2: This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one.
4: And this is Paul. When you move the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend.
3: And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun.
2: Yo, brothers. This was the tri Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be half your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers.